This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code the candid frame at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. There are times when the career of a photojournalist becomes encapsulated in a single iconic image, whether of a tragic political moment or a joyful triumph in sports. As important as these photographs can be, the measure of any great photographer actually comes from the legacy of stories they've told and continue to tell. It's the storytelling of today's guest, Vanessa Charlotte, that I really appreciate. Whether she's telling stories of Haiti or the Mississippi Delta, she brings a perspective that is as rich with complexity as any of her photographs. Her mixed Caribbean heritage, her time as a veteran, and a working mother have all helped her to develop a compassionate eye that she brings to her work and that makes what she does both exceptional and intriguing. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I'm glad to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. Likewise. As much as I loved hanging out in uh, Billings, it's just like I didn't have enough time with anybody. <laughs> I know, I know. It was it went by real quick. Yeah, it did. The Curious Society did a beautiful job on pulling it together. So yeah. it was nice. Yeah, a lot of fires to put out, but I think they didn't they did a damn good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I look forward definitely. to going there next year. So Yeah, for sure. All they have to do is give me the date. <laughs> same, same. So I loved, I loved, you know, learning more about you and your work while I was up there. Yeah, you've led a fascinating life and, and, and career. <laughs> but I, I, let's let's start with you coming up in 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 Miami. Okay. Because I know that that's really critical to your beginnings, especially your first forays as a photographer. But th- tell me about your Miami coming up, because when most people think about Miami, they usually think about the beaches and the parties right, South and, Beach. <laughs> and if they go back enough, you know, Miami vice and all that stuff. But you, you know, you came from a very, uh, very different Miami than what most people outside of the city are familiar with. Tell me about what that was like for you. What, what was the community like for you coming up? Yeah. So I would say that I came up in the real Miami Right. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in this amazing enclave of Haitians and Cubans and Dominicans that shared space, raised their families, loved and lived. It was extremely vibrant. You can, the streets had its own soundtrack. So at any moment, you can hear merengue, bachata, compa, or reggae music happening all on the same street. You know, it it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yet at the same time, Miami was difficult, right? A lot of people were trying to find their way. As I said, it was an immigrant community. So people worked really, really hard to make ends meet. 
so that they can raise their families. And in my case, um, I was raised by this amazing mother who, when I picked up the camera, I was 12 years old and she was actually putting herself through nursing school at the time. And I was growing up in a community that my mother did not really want me to go to the local high school, or I mean the local middle school. And so she happened to hear that they were accepting students at an art school about an hour away from my home um, in a very affluent part of Miami. And um, she went out and bought me a Walgreens camera, one of the disposable ones. And she was just like, well, here's a camera, go take pictures in the community. And mind you, since I literally grew up in the hands of you know, the abuelitas that's at the bodegas, the mm-hmm. taxi cab drivers, um, the guys on the corner. They've known me since I was very, very young. I was able to capture these, at the time, very amateur pictures <laughs> of my <laughs> Miami and present them to the school. And I really didn't know how to put a portfolio together. So I went with the envelope and um, I showed them the pictures and they love the pictures. And so that's how I got into the school and I began to study photography. And that's what really was a turning point for me on this lifelong journey to to photography, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't say there's anyone else that I can say whose career of photography started through a Walgreens. You can own that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you got to keep it interesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but you, I, yeah, I, no, I, it, was, it was completely happen <laughs> chance, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that reaction to your photographs really struck me. You know, the idea that these pictures, as amateurish as they might have been, were revealing something that the person who looked at them was completely oblivious to, right? And the idea of that the images that people of color create within their communities are sometimes the only outlet through which that, that world can be seen, especially from a more intimate, you know, point of view. Yeah. So that's, you know, even though that's just your beginning story, I think that's a narrative that I think, you know, continues. Absolutely. As you've matured and as you've grown as a photographer, it's like, so we're kind of dealing with the same stuff as you were when you're dealing with 12. No, yeah. And and it's very true. Um, I am still very drawn to the aesthetics of people of color particularly black bodies. I, I think that we're beautiful. I love seeing how black bodies take up space in a photograph and disrupt this idea of um, photography being meant for just one specific community. And if a community of color is photographed, I really love the fact that my work comes from a personal place. It's quite intimate. Um, it's not voyeuristic. And that the photographs that I make and that I show are photographs of a life that I am currently living, right? So I still go to the bodegas. I still hang out with the guys on the corner. I still, <laughs> I still ride in the back of the taxi cabs for the, of the poppies, right? Like if 
Lyft is not doing its thing. I know who to call to make sure that I can get to where I need to get to. That mm -hmm. is still a very um, intimate part of my life. And that continues in my work. You said an interesting thing, and I've heard you say it before, about how you like how the black body a a occupies the photographic space. Yeah. Talk to me more about that. What do you mean by that? Well, when you think about photographs of black bodies, especially like within the historical context, right? Mm -hmm. It was usually a black person in the corner or um, standing behind a white person or in a position of subjugation too. So even physically how they were presented in the photograph was diminished. Their importance, their who they were as a person was um, denigrated in a photograph. And so what I like to do is I like to put black bodies in the center um, or completely take up the frame um, because I want for the audience to become curious as to who this person was and place them in a position where they can't look away, right? Like this yeah. person has dominated the frame and it really forces people to think about various narratives. Who was telling the story? Why isn't this story included? Um, and how can I see myself reflected in the story of this individual? Yeah, I think about that image that you shot in Mississippi of that, um, I think I think it was a farmer who had lost his- uh, A sharecropper, uh, a sharecropper. sharecropper. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think that image really speaks to that idea. You know, because you, you go back like the images that were made, you know, during the, you know, the thirties and the forties that may have included black people that even probably some of the more iconic images, you, you feel like they're, you know, they're black people. Can you see them? But you don't necessarily identify them as an individual. It seems like right. you're, you're seeing, you're seeing them more as sort of an archetype. Yes. Yes. You know, as a more representative. Yes. And then when I see those images that you did in Mississippi is I kept going, okay, this is a man, mm -hmm. this is a woman. Mm -hmm. you know, these are individuals. Right. And what are the choices that you think you make as a photographer that allows you to succeed in being able to do that? What do you think it is? You know, thinking about what you were just saying about um, the photographs of the past of Black people, think about like the projects done during, I believe, the FDA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Farm, Security the Farmers, right? Farm Security Administration. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So at the FSA, excuse me. There were some photographs that were taken besides the migrant mother mm -hmm. of black families and you see them off in the distance, right? Or you see them like it's as if the photographer is on an overpass looking down on the family. So there's a clear separation between the photographer and the subject. And so that translates into um, the the distance between ourselves or the photographer and who they're photographing. And it also conveys a message of a group of people that are meant to be over there, right? Yeah. Like they, they are not meant to really be a part of anything. So the images that I took in, in the Mississippi Delta, um, one, I must tell you that the Mississippi Delta is hauntingly beautiful. It's, the, the terrain is uh, swampy, there's cotton fields, 
there are all these things that are happening. And so the environment um, renders the truth of the lived experiences in the South. And so what I do when I enter these kinds of spaces is I do not enter as a photographer first. Um, I enter as a human being first, right? I am deeply curious about their lives, about who they are. The South is, we would venture to say, the birthplace of Black culture in America, right? So this is where the, the roots by which the Great Migration happened and they went to different places. The South is indicative of the people who chose to stay. Now, was it brave to yeah. leave, brave to stay? You know, that left to be um, debated. But I was curious and I really wanted to know how does one create legacy and family and tradition in a place that is suffocating in a lot of way. Right. Because I, I come from that space and I want to connect on a human level, um, I, I just don't want to parachute in and take pictures and leave. That's what allows me to get to these stories because for the most part, African-Americans are deeply guarded about these very painful and traumatic stories, understandably so, right? And so I create the space. I'm not pushy. Um, I know that I have something that I wanna photograph, but I don't wanna take it from you. i rather you give it to me, um, almost as a gift. Mm -hmm. And so there's a mutual exchange that's happening and it's collaborative in nature how do you think growing up in a community that was made up largely of immigrants or first generation mm -hmm. how right. did that help to shape you in terms of your sensitivity to people whether or not you photograph them or not yeah well you know growing up haitian and dominican specifically the haitian side right i grew up in the 80s where haitians were being called boat people um, they were being um, stigmatized as folks that are coming over with HIV, um, that were leeches on the system. There are all of these negative uh, stereotypes that were being placed on Haitians. So there's that, right? And then being Afro-Latina and the ideas around blackness and beauty and aesthetics and all these things were also a conversation that was had. I knew how these narratives personally affected my perception of self. I was lucky in that um, my family, both on the Haitian and Dominican side, are very proud of being Black, right? So I never really internalized those inferior complexes, but I had friends who did. You know, like I had friends who got, who were not excited about being called Morena, for example, right? Oh, because yeah. that meant they were the darkest one. Um, or that their hair was kinky. And so they had to go to the salon every week to get their hair straightened, right? <laughs> like all these things were happening. And I knew that the stories that one places upon themselves, both internalized and also unsolicited, um, would really shape how they perceive themselves and sh ultimately shape their reality. So knowing the power of stories and storytelling, I approach it in that same way, um, because unless I bring you the story about the Davenport family in the heart of the Delta, you may not know who this family is. 
And so I want to ensure that the stories that are told about them um, are dignified, but also if they ever hear about themselves um, through my lens, it will celebrate them. When you went to the the art school, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that there weren't as many people of color there. No, it was only two. Okay. So (laughs) I'm wondering whether that that was your first experience of or t- tell me how, how that experience sort of informed how you came to understand how you were seen yeah, as, so, a, as a woman of color, you know, yeah. as a creative and stuff like that. Because I know, I know that when, when I started exploring the other parts of town, that I realized that how I was being perceived could be markedly different from how I was perceived and interacted with in my own community. What was that like for you? And how do you think that that shaped, shaped you? Yeah, well, I'll say this. Um, I didn't know that my family was considered a working class in comparison to them. I didn't know that, you know, growing up in Little Haiti was considered a bad thing. I didn't know that for example, the fact that my grandmothers can either only speak Creole or Spanish meant that they were intellectually deficient, right? I didn't know these things. This was normal for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I never thought that it, it was an issue until I remember being asked by the school secretary because she called home and my grandma picks up the phone and um, she couldn't communicate with my grandmother. And so she asked, does she speak any other language? And I said, no. And she was like, well, you know, she needs to learn something else. And that wasn't even a thought for me, (laughs) right? I even remember quite viscerally when I began began to become aware of this, I, I used to take a school bus that dropped me off in Overtown. And Overtown is a predominantly black area, but it's, it's all the low socioeconomic part of the city. I had friends in Overtown. And it wasn't until people, I saw like other students' response to me getting on the Overtown bus. I was like, oh my God, like you live there? I didn't know that was bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, that really shook me because in my world, I was the standard, I was the norm. And so to enter a space where I am no longer the norm and no longer the norm in a way that is, you know, not, not viewed in the best light was very, very challenging for me to, to deal with. So I used to be very happy that, you know, at the end of the day, I get to go home and I get to go home and I'm around people who look like me, who live like me, who love like me, who speak the way that I do. And I am embraced in that space. Yeah. The Curious Society is about providing a solution for the changing economic world of photojournalism and documentary photography. They are a group of people that see the challenges faced by countless photographers, and they're making a choice to do something about it by building community and supporting a special kind of visual storytelling. That's what I love about the Curious Society, a member-supported nonprofit 
that has created an organization devoted to the work of today's best photojournalists and documentary photographers. If you have a passion for telling stories with photographs, you can start being a part of this community by becoming a member or joining in on their weekly hangouts on Clubhouse every Tuesday. Find out more by visiting their website at CuriousSociety.org. It's uh, especially coming up young. You know, you want to be seen as exceptional, not the exception. Right, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for Absolutely. me, when I started navigating those worlds, it was, it was, first off, it was surprising because I got to see the, the disparity that existed right. in, in, in both worlds. But I also became very adept in, in living in both worlds mm-hmm. and every other world sort of in between which I think I've certainly, right. you know, have used to my advantage, not so much because I had any brand's scheme or plan about it, but it was just one of the things that I kind of, I learned or I assumed that I needed to do. Yeah. You know, that was sort of a, no, a requirement I, of my existence. I know existence, what you mean. You know? And yes. I think that as a, yes. and I think as, as, as a photographer, there's a certain sort of advantage to that, but, I nevertheless mm-hmm. think that there has to be a certain degree of sort of self-awareness about that because I think that yeah. that, that 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 sort of assumed necessity that we have to sort of you know n- not just code switch but sort of reshape who we are can influence mm-hmm. how and why we photograph and I have to be very sensitive to that. Yeah. Um, yes. And I'm wondering when yes. you, you're photographing, you know, a, a community, whether it's in Haiti or whether it's here in the United States, what do you feel is your responsibility when you are, you know, taking on a project and, and telling stories that are as genuine and honest as you can possibly make them? What are some of the considerations that you feel like you have to make to make sure that, that, that that's the case? Well... I love how you were talking about the idea of being a chameleon because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's that's how I view it, right? Being able to um, change colors, change ideas, or not ideas, but parts of yourself that fit into the, the situation without being inauthentic or unauthentic. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Well, without losing the essence of who you are. But knowing that, you know, like, for example, I will never going to Haiti speaking English all the time, right? Or I would never go into Santiago in the Dominican Republic or in the Campos, not like not speaking some kind of Spanish or not looking to connect in that way, right? So one, the responsibility that I have is to understand that when a community accepts me into their space, I am a guest in their home. Um, it is not my place to impose my ideas. I may share ideas. We may engage in conversation. But really, I need to become as seamless into the fabric of their society and everyday life as possible. Um, I don't want to create any friction or, or ruffle any feathers. I want, to feel, I want them to feel comfortable enough to in- integrate me. Um, and I understand that's not a very, that you can't force that, right? right? So um, there's that. 
from an academic standpoint, I think it's imperative to read. You have to know what's happening. Um, you have to know how the local people feel about it. Um, you have to understand, in my case, because I predominantly document communities of color, what kind of colonial or imperial or neocolonial ideas are being placed on this country that the people are either rejecting, accepting, fighting against, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Who are the other artists that are doing work in these spaces to contextualize their realities? Um, I think that literature, video, paintings, all these things can influence your practice as a photographer because it can influence your approach and your gaze and what you focus on. And so these are all the things that I think are important um, when you are documenting a community because um, you serve as a mouthpiece of sorts. Now, your mouthpiece shouldn't be the loudest voice in the room. Right. So really, it should be a situation where you are conveying what people are saying, but you want to convey it in a way that is true for them. Now, for me, I may add my own um, ideas about it, but still understanding that it is not my story. It is their story to tell. And they have given me the privilege to do so. You you served in the military for a while. And then after that, you eventually ended up. Uh, and I want to get back to that, but eventually you went and lived in Haiti for eight years. Yes, I did. Why and what insight do you think that that gave you that influenced the way that you see and you photograph that that country? Yeah, so Haiti is um, a walking oxymoron in that there can be absolute chaos and then breathtaking beauty existing in the same space simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And um, so Haiti particularly made me aware um, that there are always multiple realities happening. And I remember when I moved to Haiti, everyone thought that I was absolutely crazy. They were just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's dangerous. You can get kidnapped, <laughs> just all these things. And um, after a couple of years of living in Haiti, I would still get phone calls. And they're like, oh my God, Vanessa, Haiti's on fire. And I'm like, this block is on fire, okay? Or, you know, like this radio, but the rest of the country is fine. There's nothing happening. Kids are still going to school. <laughs> um, you know, you have the, the ladies selling their peanuts or the farmers are out at the farm, whatever. Life is still happening. And so um, my approach to the work has come from that space. So whenever I'm doing a photo essay, like in July, I was in Haiti um, after the assassination of the president, President Jovenel Moïse. And so his funeral was happening in Capaïtien, which is the northern part of the, of the country. And absolutely, there were gangs in the streets. Absolutely, there was shooting, there were protests, tires were burning. All these things happened. And I, I made sure that I captured that. At the same time, a block away, there were children beautifully dressed in their school uniform walking home after taking the final exam. And there were still children playing in the yard. And there were all these things happening. And so when I'm, when I'm approaching these kinds of, these kinds of assignments or or projects, I ensure to show the gamut because I want 
for it to be visually nuanced yet comprehensive. And Haiti has done that for me. So what did you learn living there from day to day during that, that, that period that you think oh, you never would have oh picked up had you just you know gone in every once in a while? Yeah. The biggest thing that I've learned living in Haiti is the importance of unplugging, slowing down, and taking time to cultivate your practice, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I think that in America, and you know, there's nothing wrong with this. It, for some people it works, but we're so consumed with like, let's say technology, you know, what meeting we have to do, who do we have to call, errands, things like that. And it's like this incessant chatter. Haiti literally gave me the opportunity to silence the voices, right? and really think about my work and what do I want the work to say? And there's that, the professional aspect of it. But as a person, um, it has forced me to be more intentional about how I live my life. Because Haiti operates in extremes, death is an ever-present entity, right? You never know. And I know you never know anywhere, but when there's great political strife or turmoil, it's present. And so you have to really think about, you know, like what is important? How do you want to spend your time? What do you want your legacy to be? Because death is an ever-present entity. Hmm. And so Haiti has done that for me. Has that become even more pronounced after you became a mother? Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good question. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm a mother of a precious little boy and he's six years old. I find myself thinking about, you know, who will Jacob, like what stories will Jacob hear about his mother? Um, What stories will he have about his mother? There's a, I think he's a Ghanaian God named Anansi and Anansi is the God of storytelling. And so he, and he comes up as a spider, right? And so whenever I'm out in nature and I may see a spider web or different things like that, it's like, I feel like nature is like constantly reminding us of how do we partake in this circle of life. And um, Jacob has made me present and aware in a way that I don't think, in a way that I think only becoming a mother can have done that for me. Mm I was listening to an interview earlier this week, and then and part of the conversation was this: uh, the person who's being interviewed mentioned this sort of understanding that their mother was a woman and a human being before they became their mother. Yes. And then there was so much about her that they would never really sort of understand and 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 know about them, and that really comes. Yeah. That's just that. You know, cut me to the quick because I'm slowly losing my mother to Alzheimer's, and you know, so yeah. you know, there's certain things about about her story that I'll never have access to. That God knows yeah. I've tried, but my mother's been yeah. very stubborn in terms of sharing that. But you know, yeah. in terms of like the stories we leave behind, you know, that's that's such a powerful thing, especially as we get get older. And in your case, you know, when you have children, and I think that. That's one of the reasons I'm so moved by f- photographers like you who, even when they tell stories of communities outside of their own, they're doing it in a way that's very personal, mm-hmm. you know? 
Yeah. And yeah. you know, whether you're, you know, you know, photographing sort of the demonstrations that have been happening over the last couple of years or doing the work in the Mississippi or even just doing portraits, you know, of your mm-hmm. of your son, which I love by the way. It's so beautiful. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I thought Thank back. You. I thought back to some of the work of Gordon Parks because uh, that color palette that you used in there is very similar yeah. to his, especially that shot that he shot of that boy in Kansas putting that little thing on his forehead while he's lying in the grass. Yes, the I immediately thought of this. Yes, I immediately <laughs> thought of that picture when I saw those pictures of your son. But um, you know that 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 thing of who are our pictures for? As much mm. as they please us yeah. in terms of making photographs, who are they for? So when you you know when you're looking yeah. at sort of the body of your you know body of your work or any even a particular project, do you ever think about who it's for? I always think about who it's for. And first things first, I will say that the body of work that I create is primarily speaking to communities like my own, uh, black communities, Hispanic communities communities of color, it's a first, it's first a very intimate conversation. It's like a love letter where I am sharing both the depth of our pain, but the beauty of our lives. And then for everyone else, it's like I'm giving you a window peek into mm-hmm. it. I remember um, Toni Morrison was talking about her work and then she alluded to the work of James Baldwin, right? And she said that, or even Ralph Ellison. And she said that, you know, there are certain things in my work that I don't have to explain to someone who looks like me, right? So for example, the photographs of Jacob bathing outside with a hose in the yard and his locks, Mm -hmm. like, you know exactly what that is. Right. And you know exactly who I'm talking to or or the work in the Delta where you see um, Natomi Davenport, who is half Choctaw, half Choctaw Native American, half African-American standing on the front porch for communities that look like mine or communities that I come from. You know, that's grandma and them sitting on the porch. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, that mm-hmm. as soon as you see it, you can think about your abuelita or you can think about your grandmother. You can think about whoever. And so it's first for you to see you and then for everyone else after that to get a peek into the very intimate lives of people of color. I I don't know if you've noticed this, but in my opinion, we are quite private about the most intimate spaces of our lives. Oh, yeah, I've noticed that. We don't really talk about it. No se habla de eso. No se habla de eso. (laughs) like you just you mentioned your mom right like Mm -hmm. even before she began to have these experiences you know like my mother as well or my grandmothers are not always running to tell me you know what life was like for them Mm -hmm. growing up or whatever so when when you have moments to explore that more intimate part it is for everyone whose grandmother or loved one has never given them that space for them to use their imagination and explore that with me through that subject. Hmm. Let me go back to your time in the military. What do you think you got from that experience was that was that's become 
an invaluable part of your life, but especially as a photographer? The military has given me grit, <laughs> great discipline, and like tenacity, right? So in the service, if you take the training seriously, you really begin to understand that it's mind over matter. And so you train your body to submit to the will of your mind. And I think as a photographer, when you're doing this kind of work, it is personal deep work that, especially when you stay in the field for a long time, because not all the time you will be celebrated for the photographs that you take that you think are absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. Not all the time will they be printed. Not all the time will you get compensated, you know, what you feel like you're worth for the work. And so you have to maintain, I think, that level of grit, tenacity, and discipline in your practice and really understand the mission, right? Like, why are you doing this? What is your why? What is your driving force? Um, because when you become clear on your why, which is what I've learned in the military, it makes you pursuing this as your, as your lifelong work something that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's so good. Yeah, understanding your why is, is what gets you through those moments when you don't want to get out of bed and do it or want to give up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. Give, give me an example where that kind of thinking helped you push through a difficult situation. It can be photographic or, or not. Well, St. Louis and cover, covering civil unrest in St. Louis was tough. Um, St. Louis exists in the shadows of the Ferguson uprising. The racial tension in St. Louis is palpable. Um, and the protests went on for maybe five months. And it was almost every day. And <laughs> it was exhausting, right? And there are days where I just didn't feel like going outside. I was tired of walking on the highway and <laughs> like all these things. But then I understood why I, why I do this work, right? And primarily it is because I know that history is told from the position of the victor, not the victim. I know that a lot of photographs, a lot of archival work, a lot of documentary photography or street photography will not be seen, especially when it's taken by photographers of color that challenge the dominant story, right? And so I knew that I, want, I wanted to create an extensive body of work that would, that would render a, set, a parallel story to whatever will be told about what happened in 2020, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, or maybe when I am no longer and someone comes across my work, they can really um, have a critical and hopefully comprehensive understanding. Our friends at the Charcoal Book Club have just opened up a call for entries for the sixth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. The Chico Review is a juried photo book retreat that takes place over a week in Chico Hot Springs in Montana. 64 photographers will be selected by a jury 
and invited to spend the week taking part in portfolio reviews, artist lectures, and panel discussions. And a grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and have a book published through the Charcoal Book Club. Find out more by visiting ChicoReview.com and remember the deadline is December 26th. And thanks to all of you who continue to support the Candid Frames financially. I know it's been a tough year for everyone, but all your contributions, especially over the past year and a half, have been invaluable to us and the work that we're doing. And if you haven't already, consider becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a big difference. Thank you so much for your support. Do you feel like there are still not sufficient outlets for the work that you and other photographers are creating today and that it's going to be primarily the, 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 the passage of time that's going to instill more value in that work? Hmm. Well, I think that there are, there are definitely publications. Do I think that the publications always do stories justice? No, but yet and still, I do think that there are organizations, there are people that are in very important places that help share the story in a positive way. But I do think that if you're waiting on a publication to validate the work or validate your stories, then you're going to be waiting for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's, uh, that goes back a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even with Gordon, I just watched that documentary uh, film. Uh, was it an HBO, Choice of Weapons? Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, they, Very powerful. Yeah, it was, it was, I really enjoyed it, though I think that uh, Gordon is deserving of his own, you know, five episode docu-series, but that is a big oh, day for another, for another time. But it was really absolutely. interesting to see, <laughs> you know, the legacy that he sort of left, left behind for so many photographers in, in terms of, you know, the the choice to pick up a camera and to use it as a weapon as a, as an alternative to picking up a gun or a knife to right. because you know because I think so much it's let me see if I can intelligently voice this you know if you grow up as a person of color in this in this country and I'll just speak to this country there is a certain degree of of trauma that you live with right. that you just sort of uh, except this sort of par for the course, and you learn to sort of navigate your life around that. And and the trauma doesn't necessarily have to factor in violence, you know. Though you know that, that certainly is part of it. But also, it's 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 the just the stress of the potential for so many bad things happening, whether it's hunger, whether it's violence, whether it's abuse. And that that thing is not is not something you escape, even if you are financially able to rise above your circumstances. And I think that that I think that that informs the work of a lot of people, whether they're aware of it or not. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, considering that you know where you grew up and what you witnessed and what you experienced, you know, 
how have you processed your own upbringing surrounded by that trauma? Even And it doesn't necessarily have to be your own, but just the people in, in the community that you grew up with. How do you think that that touched you and informed who you are? Oh, wow. I want to touch on briefly on the, the idea of the weapon and then go back to what you were mm-hmm. saying. I think that oftentimes people don't understand that the camera within itself is a tool of power, right? Yeah. And that can wield either peace or war, depending on oh, the images yes. that are seen, mm-hmm. right? So that within itself is absolutely a weapon. And so when we're thinking about it through that context, communities like mine, people who look like me, who have been visually presented in a certain way, that they show up in the imaginations of certain dominant groups in an uncontrolled manner, right? The uncontrolled imagination of the dominant culture is what creates trauma in communities of color. Because when you are in an uncontrolled imagination of a dominant culture who sees you as subhuman first, that ultimately trickles down into the conditions of the neighborhood, your financial situation. There's an array of things that really impact it, right? So with that, the manner in which I've processed that trauma um, is by using the camera um, as my weapon to combat these ideas. Being being raised by Haitian parents, um, the dominant story for us is 1804, right? Like when Haiti got their liberation. And so um, I look at the camera as a tool of liberation. Um, If I continue to view people who look like me or communities like mine as disadvantaged, then I will negate to see the beauty in us. And so the way that I process the trauma is to literally turn it on its head, right? So to have a different internal dialogue where everyone has experienced pain, everyone has experienced subjugation, There's nothing new under the sun. So how then do I use with my little voice and my camera, how then do I begin to challenge things so that black folk see the triumph in our own stories Hmm. and operate from that space, right? Because if we don't operate from that space, then that sadness, that trauma will dominate our lives in a quite destructive way which then leaves our children very vulnerable. And we don't have the time or the luxury to allow that to happen to them. Yeah, because that's an inheritance you pass on. Absolutely. Whether you're aware of it or not. Absolutely. Because like we carry the weight of our parents. And and our parents carry the weight of their grand, right? So like, it's like a generational thing. So you have to really think about, well, what are you passing down? And nobody's perfect. I'm sure that I will pass down things to my son that I am not proud of. Um, but I hope I also pass down things that um, solidifies himself 
or that affirms him to himself. You were speaking today, uh, you told me on the subject of bringing creativity to, or imagination to documentary photography. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Brian? Well, for me, I think it's a reimagining. It is a shifting of the gaze. Um, it is the eradication of the white gaze, right? It is centering the person, how they view themselves in the story. And so it comes from a remembrance. It comes from maybe premonitions, but really it's from a shifting, right? So viewing the mundane as something extraordinary. And so that to me is, is what the imagination is within documentary photography. So for example, I could have, like the photograph you're talking about with Mr. Davenport. Mm -hmm. I could have easily photographed Mr. Davenport from the position where I am standing over him, right? Which would have perpetuated the same idea of Mr. Davenport being a black Mississippi man who lived on the Coito plantation, who has lost four digits due to the cotton gin, who was a former sharecropper. Instead, I photographed Mr. Davenport from me being down and him being up. And so that shifts everything. Right. So, yes, you see the digits are missing, but that is not all that you see. Right. Like he has on a Spider-Man shirt. He is looking off at a distance. He looks rather distinguished. Um, his features are so pronounced and so black and so beautiful that it it allows you to see the dignity in this man, not just the physical scars that exist on his body. Yeah. You know, that, but that, you know, and that demands that the photographer understand the language of photography, not just Absolutely. what makes a good image look good, but that shooting from a particular angle or yeah. under a particular quality of light renders the yes. subject in the scene in a particular way. And that that's, and the interpretation of that image is built on the countless images that have gone before it mm. that mm -hmm. mirror that. Right. Mm -hmm. So if there's a certain, yeah. you know, that, that shot of, you know, pointing down the camera, not only is it just that implied dominance that's implied in, in, in shooting from that perspective, but countless images or films where you've seen that and you've come to understand that that's oh, yeah. what that means, right? And if you're sort right. of oblivious Absolutely. to that and you're just yeah. focused on the aesthetics of the photograph, um, the consequences of that choice may go over your head and you may be inadvertently mm -hmm you know, reinforcing a, a, a stereotype or doing your subject a disservice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And so like, again, being aware of the visual cues that one may not be aware of and how that translates to the masses mm -hmm. and what story does that perpetuate? It's always suggested that, uh, I think, I think it was Jay Maisel when asked, he says, how do you become a better photographer? He said, will lead a more interesting life. You know, it has nothing to do with photography. Yeah. And I know a big part of your, your world is a lot of reading. So what, what's the yeah. what's the stuff that you're reading that really you feel like is is just as nurturing as, you know, uh, uh, a great monograph that you got in the mail? Oh, my God. I am rereading the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love uh, that text. I think that it's quite powerful. I am rereading um, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. 
because I feel like every time you reread these kinds of texts, it brings something to your awareness that maybe when you read it the first time or the second time, you were in a particular place in your life that it kind of went over your head. Yeah. And so um, (laughs) Invisible Man, definitely in relation to now looking at my son and um, thinking about you know, at what point will society render him invisible and how do I ensure that he does not erase himself to himself is very important. And then with the Tao Te Ching, with Lao Tzu, it's basically talking about, how can I say this? Like the eternal now, right? How you can't really allow yourself to become consumed with the past because it no longer exists. And you can't allow yourself to be bogged down with the future because that doesn't exist. And so what exists is the now. So how do you harmonize yourself to everything that is around you? And that definitely translates into my work. So how do I harmonize myself with environments so that um, I continue a symbiotic flow within the space? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a rather spiritual text, um, but that I like that. <laughs> no, because that for for me, I think it's all sort of all about that. You oh. know, staying 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 in the present is absolutely essential for me when it comes to my personal and my creative life. Oh yeah. And uh, if if I'm not if I'm not present, if I'm preoccupied with the past or what's you know what tomorrow's going to bring, you know, I become a hot mess. And and I find that I'm not as as willing to to tap in to that deep core of myself that I know is required to do the better work. Right? No, yeah. Because if I'm struggling with all that other stuff, I'll do quote unquote good work, but that doesn't challenge me. Mm -hmm. You know? And that's Mm -hmm. and that's You know, you can only do that for so long before you get frustrated and all that other no, stuff. No, yeah, for sure. But, right? But it starts <laughs> for, for sure. that. It starts for the self work. Yeah. At least, at least, yeah. I, I think it's it has to for me because I have seen people who have produced amazing work and enjoyed an incredibly successful career uh, to the detriment of the rest of their lives, especially their family lives. And yes. I'm not willing to make that choice. So I it requires that. me to, to just be like, okay, I got to take care of my own, S- you know, SHIT. Um, yeah. It ought to make sure that happens. So what do you do? What do you do to make sure you're as even keel as you, you can be? Yeah. So I'm really big on um, contemplation, right? So I meditate a lot. And I don't meditate in a way that, you know, some people may do, like they sit in the quiet room and, you know, they may put on some meditation music and or chanting, but um, I shoot almost every day. And that's my quiet space where Mm. I still my mind and I allow myself to lose myself in the present moment. So I do that a lot. Um, I also block out time for my family. So there, there's just time that's just non-negotiable, um, which is very early in the morning and um, later in the evening. I feel like um, routines are important. And so I set the tone for the day 
So like I may spend the morning literally playing with my son. And, we, you know, he's a boy, he's rambunctious, so I'm slamming him down, we're playing around. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening, I'll put on either uh, A Love Supreme by John Coltrane, or I'll put on some uh, Sarah Vaughn, and I actually play it on a vinyl, on a record. Excuse me. And um, we'll be hanging out. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like that. <laughs> we'll be hanging out. <laughs> I, I so that's somebody, what I do. Like I'm yeah. big on family blacking out time. <laughs> yeah, somebody somebody gave me an album recently to get me started. It's like, man, I ain't got the space. I just get myself in more trouble. I'm, Listen, I, I'm telling I, you, it's worth it. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I'm just like books. You can't see it right now, but my, my I'm gonna have to build another bookshelf because it's just like I keep telling myself, okay, this is the last monograph for for a couple of months, and then I see something else. It's like, click. You know, and yeah. purchase no, you it. So it. I, 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 I can't. Because if I don't get it now, it's just going to be too expensive yeah. later. Exactly. But, I get it. <laughs> well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um. So... I would say look into the work of C.W. Griffin. Hmm. C.W. Griffin actually was in the book Songs of My People by Gordon Parks. He resides here in Miami, Florida. He's, I think C.W.'s maybe in his 60s or 70s. Brilliant, brilliant photographer. Um, His work expands, I think over 40, 40 years. And so I would say if you have the opportunity to look into the work of C.W. Griffin, it is definitely worth your while. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me today. I'm glad we made it happen. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks to Vanessa for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting VanessaCharlotte.com. And remember to check out the Curious Society at CuriousSociety.org. They are building a wonderful community, promoting and supporting exceptional photojournalism and documentary photography. Buy the first issue of their magazine and also become a member. And check out their weekly discussion every Tuesday afternoon on the Clubhouse app. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice does make a difference. And remember, you can support this show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod 
whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.